stay connected to nature. We're part of something bigger that we know so very little about. I mean, I've studied the science. I've worked on these issues nationally and internationally for 30 years. And every day I learn something about nature that I didn't know before. And sometimes when I'm feeling despair or burnt out, I just need to go and take that walk in the woods and stand beside some really big tree and imagine those roots going down and connecting to, to a system thousands of miles away, communicating. I mean, now scientists like Suzanne Samard or, or the book by Merlin Sheldrake and Tangled Web, we can now see that trees are communicating with each other underground. So I imagine myself as part of that system and being held up and supported by this huge, unknowable, amazing system that we get to be a part of on Earth. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Every week, I invite you to care more so we can learn, grow, and create a better world together. A few weeks back, I introduced you to Nina Simons, founder of Bioneers and author of Nature, Culture, and The Sacred, which I have right here in front of me. If you missed that episode, I encourage you to go back to it. I will include links with show notes to make that easy. Knowing part of our mission here at Care More Be Better is really to reverse global warming. She made the introduction to today's incredible guest, Sephora Berman. Sephora has been designing environmental campaigns and working on environmental policy in Canada and beyond for over 20 years. She serves as the International Program Director at Stand.Earth, the chair of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Committee, and the co-founder of the Global Gas and Oil Network. She is also an adjunct professor of York University Faculty of Environmental Studies. She is a former co-director of Greenpeace International's Global Climate and Energy Program and co-founder of Forest Ethics, now known as Stand.Earth. In 2019, Sephora received the Climate Breakthrough Project Award, which includes $2 million to break through global strategies on climate change. Sephora Berman, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I'm just so thrilled to have you here to further and deepen our conversation around these important issues. And the episode that just aired the week that we're recording, I got to connect with Maya Van Rossum about the Green Amendment that she's pushing forth. And so talking about international treaties feels like a national extension of what she's working to do on a state-by-state -state and even cross-country basis here in the United States. But as you mentioned in your work, there is so much more to this than a single country's imprint. So talk to me about what led you here and why we should care specifically about fossil fuel use today. Sure. You know, it's when I first started working on climate change, I'd already been working for, I guess, almost 20 years on forestry and conservation and really the protection of old growth forests. And and the thing that struck me about working on climate change is it just seems so complicated. I mean, I got three university degrees and I felt like I was constantly going, okay, cap and trade or carbon tax and carbon credits or offsets or like, what am I supposed to be for? 
you know, it was just, it's a shifting of how we use energy, how we transport ourselves, how we get around the world. All of this is massively complicated. Mm-hmm. But as I started digging into it, I started realizing that what's not complicated is that 86% of the pollution that's trapped in our atmosphere, that's literally creating this sweltering blanket that's changing the earth, causing floods and storms and the fires and the extreme heat waves, 86% of it comes from three things, oil, gas, and coal. (laughs) And I started kind of following that thread and thinking to myself, well, so Okay, so fossil fuels, I use them every day. We all use them every day. Can we not? Do we have enough? How much is enough? How much should we be using and producing? And then I realized that all of our policy and our international agreements are focused on who gets to pollute and how much. I mean, literally, that's what the United Nations climate change negotiations are about. They're really, they're negotiating the space that's left in the atmosphere. How much pollution can we allow to go up there and get trapped? Because there's basic physics. Now we know if you have more carbon trapped in the atmosphere, that increases the impacts of climate change on the earth. And yet no one's negotiating who gets to produce what and how much. So a lot of my research started focusing on, well, who decides? Who decides when we have enough? And do we have the the replacements for all these fossil fuels, to fast track 15 years of work, what I found out is we do. Renewable energy is now cheaper and can scale to replace almost all uses of fossil fuels. I mean, there's some things we all know we can't replace yet. We don't have the technology for air travel without fossil fuels at a large scale. But actually, airplane travel is only 2% of global emissions, aviation. So for the majority of ways that we use fossil fuels, we can now replace them with either conservation and energy efficiency or renewables and electrification. And it's starting to happen around the world. But meanwhile, the oil, gas, and coal companies are on track to produce 110% more fossil fuels than we can ever use, need. And if we do use them, they'll burn us. So we already have, it's it's that stats from the United Nations Production Gap Report. And what we know is that we already have enough fossil fuels above ground or under construction that if we use it, it will take us past two degrees, which is kind of a benchmark in climate change, in the climate change world. If we go past two degrees, then parts of the planet will be uninhabitable. Millions of people will lose their homes. Thousands of people will die. And so we already have enough. So why are we spending the majority of the world's financial and intellectual and political capital to dig up more of the stuff that we know is hurting us? So that's where my work focuses on is how do we get countries to agree to stop expanding the problem? Yep. Well, we see we're transitioning off of fossil fuels, but to your point, 110% does not sound like progress. And yet I also just saw today that the ban on fracking in the UK has now been overturned. And so I get approached by fossil fuel executives all the time to come on this show because they want to talk about how fossil fuels need to be part of a transition plan in the energy space and they want to be at the table. My feeling has been they've been at the table all along. We need to push forward different conversations and different ideas, right? And it's the problem. I mean, you look at... Chase Bank, what is their number one investment? It's essentially 
<laughs> oil, yeah. oil technology. And Royal Bank of Canada and many other banks. There's some great campaigns, financial campaigns now around the world, really exposing what these banks are doing. There's a really good report that comes out from Rainforest Action Network that ranks all the banks in their fossil fuel spending. And Stand.Earth and other colleagues are running campaigns now that the public can get involved in targeting specific banks for projects that they're pushing forward that are having devastating consequences, like the coastal gas link pipeline in northern Canada that's being rammed through indigenous Wet'suwet'en territory. There's not only climate change implications of some of these major fossil fuel projects, but of course there's impacts on local communities, health impacts and indigenous rights and human rights impacts. And so when we start to actually transition, that means that we're not building more. So I agree, fossil fuels are part of the transition because a transition means we're gonna use less fossil fuels, we're gonna use more renewables, but that still means that fossil fuels are still a part of it. But when you see the fossil fuel companies arguing about being a part of transition, they're arguing to being able to produce more, to do new exploration and expand how much we're producing. Well, it's not a transition if you're continuing to grow the problem. And they have such incredible political influence and power that they've really distorted the conversation around what needs to be done about climate change. And they've made individual consumers feel guilty because maybe you don't have enough money to buy an electric car yet, or maybe you could never afford an electric car and you're taking transit and that transit is fossil fuel based, or maybe your heating that comes into your house is gas. You don't have the capacity yet to switch to a heat pump. Then people start to feel guilty, so they don't oppose fossil fuels. But the fact is we need system change, not individual change. I mean, of course it's important for individuals to try and do everything we can, But I often think that we've forgotten to think of ourselves as citizens and voters, and instead we just think of ourselves as consumers. And that's what the big oil companies want us to do. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. They say, oh, well, track your carbon credits, buy flight credits, do this, do that. I mean, ultimately, it's consistently putting it right back on us. And this whole concept of even carbon footprint really came forward because of what? The work of BP, British Petroleum. Right. Exactly. Because they wanted it to not be something that they were responsible for. They wanted the fossil fuel companies tried to push the responsibility onto the consumer through public relations campaigns like the carbon footprint. And they also wanted to cast doubt about whether climate change was happening. And they were successful in doing that for about 20 years. And that's now been extensively documented through the Exxon New campaign and through great research like is being done by uh, Naomi Oreski and others. Yes. Well, unfortunately, there are still plenty of climate deniers out there. <laughs> and I see them in my feeds on social channels, too. So we're not 100% of the way there yet. But as I look at the whole picture, one of the things that I think about is the fact that we have this individual responsibility in a way where we're trying to be part of the solution. People want to know what they can personally do to help advance these ideas forward beyond just simple talk. So there's this moment where we kind of come up against these big problems where we say, oh, these gas and oil companies are just too big. I mean, what can I do to help this kind of a treaty pass? You know, I'm just one person. And so I would love for you to talk about that because I think it's a dilemma that people that are concerned face every single day. 
Yeah, absolutely. And even though I've worked on these issues for 30 years and run campaigns, I as a mom, I, I still think about it too all the time, every day. Am I doing enough? Is it possible to make a difference? In some ways, there's two issues I think embedded in your question is what should citizens do to make a difference? But also, how do we maintain hope? Because hope exactly. is essential in the face of something this big. That's hard. And I, I often think about it and about hope as not something we just have, but instead something we do. I think hope is something that we create through our actions, through engaging in organizing, whether it's with our neighbors or with a group that we're in, being a part of making a change can give you hope. Being a participant instead of just an observer in what's happening in the world. So I, you know, Barbara Kingsolver in an interview I heard years ago said, every morning I put on my hope like a sweater and think about what I'm going to do today. And I think about that in the morning. I'm like, okay, come on. What are we going to do today, Hope? Because if not, you can get crushed by it. But also in terms of what we can do as people. So the Fossil Fuel Treaty, part of the idea of the initiative is learning from history. You know, we don't have nuclear weapons proliferating the way they used to because of individual citizens all over the world who called for a nuclear non-proliferation agreement, chemical weapons bans, landmine bans. The more I studied all of these different treaties, the more I realized that citizen action and civil society action all added up to push us to force our governments to look at these issues. It's um, sometimes I think of that organizing as the grunt work of social change, because if you're knocking on doors or you're signing a petition or you're trying to be greater than the sum of our parts, it sometimes feels like you're just a drop in the bucket. But those drops are the, you know, they ripple out and they grow. And that is what makes change. So with the Fossil Fuel Treaty, we've designed the campaign to be open source. Anyone can join the campaign. So endorse it as an individual on the website. But then anyone can say, you know what, I want to get my city to pass a motion to endorse the Fossil Fuel Treaty. And that's starting to happen all over the world. 60 cities, Amsterdam, London, Vancouver, LA, most recently Lima, Peru, have passed motions at city councils endorsing the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty and calling on their national governments to start negotiating a treaty to stop the expansion of fossil fuels. All of those 60 cities have happened in the last 24 months just because individuals decided to start working on it. So off, off our website, we created a resource package. Anyone, you don't have to be with an NGO. You can download Here's a draft motion for your city council. Here's a step-by-step -step guide on how to do it. So you can get involved with getting your city to endorse. You can get involved individually. You can get involved in some of the events that we have. And most good climate campaigns will give you that access. You're not just signing a petition, but you're actually figuring out, okay, what if I had a couple hours a week to organize? I'm going to commit those hours just like I would to a job and start organizing. Well, to that point, I wonder if you happen to know whether Palo Alto, California is on that list yet. I don't, actually. I would have to check the list. But everyone who has endorsed 3,000 scientists, Nobel laureates, cities, etc., are all on the website, fossilfueltreaty.org. So you can scan down and see whether your city or your state, some states, or Hawaii was the first state this summer to endorse. So we're trying to get different groupings of people. Right now we have a faith 
letter that's going around the world. The Vatican just endorsed the fossil fuel treaty and getting different groupings of people to endorse actors and celebrities, faith leaders, scientists, and also cities. And you can help by organizing in any of those areas. I want you to repeat that website once more for us. Did you say fossilfueltreaty.org? Yeah, it's fossilfueltreaty.org. And there's an action hub. When you go to the Take Action, it'll take you to all the resources, and then you can figure out how you can engage with it. I love that. Well, I happen to be connected to somebody, Matt Schlegel, who is running every Monday. He speaks to the Palo Alto City Council and uses his three minutes to do what he can to push for change there. And then is organizing weekly meetings on Fridays, reconnects with thought leaders in the space or just other activists that are trying to learn what they can do. So my plan is to actually join up with him because it's only about an hour away from me learn the things he's doing and then replicate that here in Santa Cruz County at the Santa Cruz City Council so that I can, you know, learn from someone who's already in the weeds with it. Because I think sometimes that's what gets in the way. And so one of the things I'm going to be doing on this podcast as part of this whole concept of Fridays for Future is sharing my journey in short, maybe five minute episodes, could be a little longer, and how that I'm activating in this way. So if we haven't, as Santa Cruz County signed on, and if Palo Alto has not, perhaps I can be a part of what pushes that movement forward. So... Fantastic. And, you know, cities play a really important role historically in getting national governments to do things. But also the majority of people live in cities. The majority of climate impact is in cities. And so there's another sister program that I've helped create at Stand.Earth called Safe Cities. And the SAFE, SAFE stands for Stand Against Fossil Fuel Expansion. And the Safe Cities program is looking at what power and jurisdiction or authority do cities have to stop the expansion of fossil fuels? And what are the best laws and policies that we're seeing being put in place around the world? So we've created toolkits for city leaders to look at so that they can say, oh, Santa Cruz did this, or London, London did this, we should try that here. And really creating kind of buckets of policies and networking cities together to encourage them to do this work and also providing resources for community members to lobby their city councils for those policies. Because it's one thing to endorse the fossil fuel treaty and try and encourage your federal government to do the right thing, but what are cities doing within their own boundaries? And that's where the Safe Cities program comes in. Wow, really great. Now, you mentioned something earlier about an individual who, let's say, they can't afford to put the heat pump in yet, or they don't have the money for an electric car, and they're still driving an older gas vehicle. We know that Gavin Newsom has said that by 2035, no new vehicles in California that are sold will be gasoline-fueled. So these are all kind of movements in a direction, but at the same time, we're now in this position where we have to allocate and get the rare earth minerals needed to build all of these battery systems. Mm -hmm. And so some argue that we're potentially kicking the can down the road that is going from fossil fuels to another resource that is also limited. So what do you say to that whole concept? And I mean, I also realize cars are becoming, as we continue on, the fossil fuels 
<laughs> I mean, gas is expensive, right? Mm -hmm. People are having to pay that now. And also that electric cars are, are becoming more reasonable. There are more reasonable options than a Tesla, let's just say. Yeah. So the overall, I think, is really a question around resource management and what is truly going to be best for Earth long term. Mm -hmm. So there is no question that electrifying transportation is better for the Earth long term for a couple of reasons. First of all, our priority has to be right now how much carbon is entering the atmosphere. Because we're already today at about 418 parts per million of carbon trapped in the atmosphere. It's trapped. And we haven't, as a society, as a species, figured out yet how to sequester enough carbon from the atmosphere to reduce that number. And as that number goes up, the earth heats up. There is undeniable evidence of that now. We're experiencing it in so many Millions of people are experiencing it right now around the globe, especially in the heat waves in California and China, and especially the floods in Pakistan. So we know that's true. So that has to be the priority is in the short term, ensuring that we reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. We know that the electrification of transport is one of the most important ways to do that. And so in the long term, as we start to electrify both public transport and cars, then we're going to shift one of the largest sources of carbon going into the atmosphere into a grid and a system that can be renewable. So right now, not every place is feeding their electric cars or their electricity with renewable energy. It could still be coal or gas, but as that's shut down, it can move to renewables. So that's a better system. But you're right, there's no free lunch. Like everything we build is going to have an impact. The question is, can we do it in a way, in a different way that is sustainable. And I'm pretty excited about the new research and new evidence on circular economy. So how much mm -hmm. of those metals do we already have above ground, above the earth? And can we mine garbage dumps and existing systems in order to then bring those resources back into the system for various minerals and metals that we're going to need to produce electric cars? In the long term, the circular economy is going to be the most sustainable. In the shorter term, there is no question that the mining for materials for all types of cars, including electric cars, has significant impact. And we have to make sure that that's done in a way that is just and that is equitable and has the least environmental footprint that we can have. Well, then I think we get to the same questions about climate justice in a way, because we tend to extract minerals from different areas around the globe impact communities without giving, let's say, a fair share of profit even to the individuals that are affected by the mining in their areas and, you know, sell the rights for mineral mining out from under people. <laughs> so, oh, know, it's terrific. And, and we're ignoring in a lot of places, indigenous rights, indigenous communities are not having a say in the decision making, even though that's where they live. And so it's, you know, these are complicated questions. Right. But we know now that there is a way to do it better. And that means ensuring free prior and informed consent of Indigenous peoples. It means designing a project ahead of time so you're ensuring you're protecting waterways. You know, right now, even in Canada, we have mineral development where the tailings are stored in the rivers. So when I looked at an environmental assessment for one of these projects and I read that the minerals, it was actually for a gold mine in Ontario, Northern Ontario, and I read 
the tailings and and tailings mean the you know the toxic outflow of the minerals pro- of the mining process will be stored in the river. And I thought, what do they mean they're going to store it in the river? And what it literally means is that there's just big pipes of outflow into the rivers. And the idea is that the toxins and minerals will just settle in the rivers. But so we're we're sending high amounts of chemicals that have that are carcinogenic that cause cancer into freshwater systems even in Canada. There is no question that the mining systems around the world need to be changed and and are broken. Well, and I realize at the same time I'm asking these questions about mining for rare earth minerals, it seems like we just seem to give fracking a pass like what has happened <laughs> in this yeah. world where the UK suddenly overturns something that was positive? Like, we don't need to be fracking. If we can just limit the amount of oil we're consuming today and plan for a better tomorrow, then ultimately we can make progress. Instead, we keep walking it back to line the pockets of people who are all too wealthy already. You know, we look at something like Chevron or Exxon, they're they're recording record profits. Yeah. Yes, the price of gas has gone up considerably, but to fund them because they never take the hit. They just always pass that on to the consumer. And so at the end of the day, we're all paying more for a resource that's robbing energy from our past and damaging the potential future. So, I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir with my listeners here. No, very well said. I think those are really important points. And they're they're not only making record profits right now, but they say they're part of the transition. But if you look at the top 20 oil and gas companies and their CapEx, they're spending less than 2% of their money on renewable energy and Mm -hmm. development. So, so, you know, it's a greenwash to say these are companies that are trying to support the renewable energy development and the transition. In fact, the top 20 oil and gas companies now have about $930 billion invested in new expanded fossil fuel projects between now and 2030. And that's why we need government regulation and we need government cooperation on new international agreements. But I think that we're not going to get those, the government standing up to big oil And we're not going to get those new international agreements unless all of us make an effort to make sure that our elected officials know that we'll support them if they make the hard choices, but that also there'll be consequences if they don't, that they know that climate change and climate policy is a priority. And if they ban fracking, if they say no new fossil fuels, we'll support them in doing that. And if they don't do it, we'll vote for someone else. We have to make it a political issue. And that means, you know, for some people, if you're open to it, it means dusting off those placards and marching in the streets with our kids and showing visibly that we care. Well, frankly, it's that's what it will take to actually have the change happen. Now, there are examples in the past where we were able to have monumental, really important legislation passed through Congress. Mm-hmm. I can think of one in particular, the DSHEA Act, the Dietary Supplements Health and Education Act from 1994, right? In the health and nutrition space, consumers were concerned that their rights to vitamins would be stripped from them, basically as drug companies were trying to write the law in such a way that you couldn't offer these products anymore, that you would have to go to a drug for all sorts of nutrient-related things that could support you, especially in the space of herbal constituents, herbs, and things along those lines, right? And what happened in that case was 
We got more letters to our legislators than they had seen since the Vietnam War. Wow. And even more than they saw during Vietnam. And so if you think about that, that was a monumental effort on the part of regular people, of people like you and me. But it feels like in today's world, because we've made it so easy to just send an email or click a button to sign a petition, that that for some reason has a little bit less weight today, because it's the loud minority that gets the attention in media. It's the loud minority that gets the attention when it comes to things like protest. And in some areas, we're even seeing protest rights are being taken away from people where you're told you can't gather and you can't gather at these specific times. It becomes more and more challenging. So if we do not exercise our rights, if we do not exercise our rights of, of free speech and also of protest, suddenly these things could erode away. And so I personally am of the mind that we should seek to gather more, be willing to get those placards out. Absolutely. Um, and in addition to sending all those emails and clicking all those petitions and hoping that it may have some modicum of an effect. Yeah, I totally agree. We That is the basis of a functional democracy, is our ability to organize, to influence, to have the information and transparency that we need to engage in these issues. And increasingly, it's clear that we have to demand that. Yes. Now, as we prepare to wrap, I like to ask a question of all my guests, which is simply, if there's a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had, what might it be? And if you have one, you can ask and answer it. Okay. Well, it's funny. Most people don't talk about hope. Actually, no, I know the question. A lot of people lately, especially students when I lecture, are asking me, how are you still doing this after 30 years? And I think that that is important for people. How do you avoid burnout? You know, for those of us who care more and want to be better, it can be overwhelming. These issues are big. They're intransigent. There's a lot of them. And so my answer to that is three things. One, always set your goals and specific goals around what you're going to engage in and what you want to achieve by engaging in it. Like if I say to myself, I'm going to solve climate change, I am set up for burnout and fail because one person (laughs) cannot solve global climate change. But if I say my goal this, this, in these next six months, I'm going to focus my efforts on helping build faith leader support for the fossil fuel treaty. And I, you know, if I could get a hundred well-known faith leaders in these 10 countries, So I try and get as specific as possible, and then I work on it. Because then if you can achieve those objectives, it'll empower you to do more and empower the people around you because they see change. Well, and by doing that, I'm just, I'm impressed with the Vatican piece because that will be like a chip, you know, that falls and then pushes another one over. Exactly. Yes, because you've had that focus. You also get this benefit of people talking about your work to other people they're connected to that are also in that space. And so if you stay focused on it, then you're going to have more of those chips fall where you want them to. Oh, exactly. I love that. I know you said three things. So, <laughs> so that so the, the first, set some specific objectives and, and clarity on what you want to work on that you can achieve change in a specific time because that will keep you going. Secondly, don't forget about the yoga or the meditation or the walks in the woods. You know, whatever it is that you need to do, 
going and playing Lego on the floor with your kids for a couple hours a day. Every day, we all need to take some time to use those other parts of, their brain, of our brain to find joy. I had some students the other day who said to me, but how can we find joy in the climate era? All, you know, we're, we're either working on this stuff or, we're, or we try and get blottoed. And I thought, if we don't find joy and appreciate life and remember what that feels like, then we're only bringing anger and despair to this work. And that's not gonna be very inspiring to create a bigger tent. And it's not going to keep you going. And then the third thing is stay connected to nature. We're part of something bigger that we know so very little about. I mean, I've studied the science. I've worked on these issues nationally and internationally for 30 years. And every day I learn something about nature that I didn't know before. And sometimes when I'm feeling despair or burnt out, I just need to go and take that walk in the woods and stand beside some really big tree and imagine those roots going down and connecting to to a system thousands of miles away communicating i mean now scientists like suzanne smart or or the book by merlin sheldrake and tangled web we can now see that trees are communicating with each other underground so i imagine myself as part of that system and being held up and supported by this huge unknowable amazing system that we get to be a part of on earth and having that connection to nature is one of the things that can keep you going. Well, I think it changes you. I think it changes you for the better. And the reality is by becoming more disconnected from the sense of nature, it's so much easier to take it for granted. I feel sure. the most empathy I think, for those people that live in big cities with a lot of cement and not a lot of trees and networks of trees around them. I would just counsel people, if you can, just play in the dirt a little bit because there's even something that's therapeutic about getting your hands in the soil, growing something and watching it fruit. I mean, all of that is really incredible, even if all you have to do so is a potted plant and a container on your windowsill. Yeah. There's some yes. mystery and amazement if you actually spend the time to stare at a flower and imagine how it was created and how complex it is, right? Those are lessons from some of the most ancient traditions in being connected to nature. And now some of the health professionals and doctors that I'm working with around the world are saying that there is evidence that five minutes in nature a day, let alone 20 minutes, will actually change your mental health. And there are some places where doctors are now prescribing a 20-minute walk in nature once a week to, in order to impact mental health issues. So, yeah, so spend some time in nature, find joy and relaxation, and, and then also just try and work on some pieces that you're going to be able to see outcomes in in the next, in the next while and identify those near-term objectives. And that will, that will keep you going. You know, some people think of get overwhelmed by this work. It's so hard. It's a, I feel so lucky to be doing this work every day to get up in the morning and be able to work on what keeps me up at night. That's a gift. Yes, it certainly is. Well, thank you so much for your work, Sephora, and for joining me today. This has been my honor and my privilege. Thanks for having me. 
To connect with Zaborah Berman and her important work combating the fossil fuel industry, visit stand.earth. And as we mentioned today, if you want to actually push for change in your neck of the woods, go to fossilfueltreaty.org. There you can find resources to even take to your city council meeting. They tend to meet weekly. All it takes is figuring out exactly when and using the two to three minutes that they will give you to talk to them in person. It is critical that we keep this conversation going with small actions, like sharing this podcast with your community or notes to your congressperson. There is hope after all, and we can all play a role in resolving our climate crisis. I'll be sure to include links to the website for stand.earth and also fossilfueltreaty.org, social profiles, and also the episodes and resources that we discussed today with our show notes. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe and write us a review. All of this helps more people discover the show. To be the first to learn about new episodes and updates about my own personal efforts as it relates to activism, you can subscribe to our newsletter. Just visit caremorebebetter.com. You can explore our blogs, past episodes, and even complete transcripts, as well as the video version of this particular show. I'm also going to include Sephora Berman's TED Talk as a plug-in there on the site, so you can watch it right there. You can leave me a voicemail or an email note directly on caremorebebetter.com as well. I work to make this a resource for you, so I do want to hear from you. Thank you, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even pass that fossil fuel treaty in multiple countries around the globe. It's time. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 